The word of our Lord from Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Sintiq to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, Whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked the opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you, Philippians... Know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things you the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us through your word. And may we respond accordingly. 
We give thanks to you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Those of you who are in the group, and my wife, of course, knows that um, know that I'm in a currently in a small group with Bill, meeting at his house, and it's a, a a small group on personal finances. This is, I believe, the second time that Bill has led this uh, led this study, and it's an incredible group to be a part of. This group in particular, but also the material that we're walking through is, is incredible and it's been wonderful and beneficial, uh, I think, to each, each person that's been a part of the group. And so I encourage you, if you haven't taken this, this uh, study, or if you maybe have, but you want a, a refresher on it, um, let Bill know, because he does a wonderful job leading it. One of the things that he's careful... Uh, to distinguish, uh, one of the careful distinctions that he makes, which is undoubtedly biblical, is the difference between tithing and giving. In the scriptures, God's people are called to bring a tithe, but when God calls his people to give, he's talking about something that's other than a tithe. A tithe, is, as you hopefully uh, well know, is 10% of what God has provided for His people. And in the Old Testament and then on, on into the New Testament, God called for His people to, to bring a tenth of all that He had provided for them to their, as it were, their local church or the temple, uh, the synagogues in those intertestamental times. And God was was expecting his people to be faithful in doing that so that his work might be done through the local church or through the temple, through the synagogue. Paul here is writing to a congregation that is well aware of the biblical mandate of tithing and is commending them for their amazing generosity and thanking them for their recent gift that they've sent to him, it seems, through their pastor Epaphroditus. Notice what Paul says about that gift. He tells them that that gift is a sweet-smelling aroma in verse 18, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so Paul is thanking them. This this letter as a whole really serves as a thank you card, an expression of thankfulness that Paul has because the Philippians have been so generous to the work of the Lord and in so doing have been so generous to Paul as the apostle who's planting churches throughout the Roman world. They give individually regularly and sacrificially to the work of the Lord, locally in their tithes and truly globally in their offerings to believers in other parts of the world. Be they suffer those who are suffering in Jerusalem, those like Paul who are traveling throughout Asia Minor or planting churches throughout the Roman Empire. The Scriptures call us to give generously to the Lord's work. But why are we challenged by Scripture to give generously? A few very practical things that I'd like to share with you this morning concerning giving. 
to the Lord's work. First is that giving generously emulates what Christ has done in our behalf. In fact, the meal that we're preparing to celebrate, Holy Communion, some call it the Eucharist, and we think of that as a high formal name. It's a Greek word that simply means thanksgiving. This is a meal of thanksgiving. In the liturgy that we'll be walking through, we will give thanks to God for all that He has done. And so, as we give generously, we are emulating what Christ has done in giving generously in our behalf. He gave Himself for us as a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice to God in our behalf. A spotless lamb, Tom, one without sin, became an offering for us. He gave Himself so that we might be freed from sin. And so as God calls us in response to give generously, we are, we are mimicking, we are in some small and finite way, we are emulating what Christ has done in our behalf. In fact, the, 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 the terms in the New Testament for grace and thanksgiving uh, and gratitude, they're all related together. They're based on the same root word. And so that's one of the, and, and as is prayer, that's one of the reasons why when we gather at the Thanksgiving table, we might be feeling a little bit more formal than we sometimes are at regular meals. Even if we're eating off of the, you know, the paper plates are probably the bigger, thicker, the, what, what's that brand that uh, really, Chinette, Chinette, thank you, Bill. Never, never leaves me hanging. Those chinette plates, you know, you splurge and get the really nice ones because you got like 12 pounds of turkey and dressing and mac and cheese and cranberry sauce and all that stuff on there. But what we might say is, Bill, do you mind saying grace? That's not normally how we talk. But grace is related to prayer. It is related to thanksgiving. Gift giving in the New Testament. And so we give because Christ has given. But also giving generously enables others to see His love in and through us. It's a practical way for others to see us sharing the love of Jesus as we give Not out of compulsion, not out of a sense of demand, but as we give freely and gladly. The Scriptures tell us that God loves the cheerful giver because it's in our cheerful giving, our generous giving, that others are able to see the love of Jesus shed abroad in our lives and being worked out through our lives But giving generously also empowers the church to do the Lord's work in the world. The local church, the church abroad, missionaries on the field, church planners, they can't do the work of God without God's people rallying around them and giving generously so that that work might go forward. I grew up in a church that had a number of regular givers whose hearts didn't always seem to be in line with the heart of Jesus. 
Some of you are nodding. Some of you are grinning. Some of you know those people. Maybe even those specific people if you've known me for a long time. Many of them were naysayers. Wet blankets. Several of them were busybodies. Some of them you might call snobs looking down their noses at others. And a few of them were downright cantankerous. But something I've learned over the years is that it's easy to critique those who give financially to the Lord's work but don't evidence the fruit of His work in their own lives. However, Giving to the work of Jesus in and through the local church that is here, where we are, is a very baseline and easy exercise in self-giving and serves as a response of trust in Him. It is not the end-all be-all. It is not the final expectation that God has for our life. It is but a baseline I say that it is easy, not to suggest that it is easily done, but to note that it is easily evident. In other words, you either give regularly and sacrificially or you don't. It's much easier to fool ourselves concerning the other spiritual disciplines. Sure, I read my Bible and pray. Sure, I go to church and Share my faith with others. Yeah, I'm doing all those things. But most of us don't keep a record of how often we read our Bibles. How often we pray. How often we gather for worship. And how often we share our faith with others. However, almost every last one of us has a checking account that shows plainly in black and white how much we give to and financially support the Lord's work. Paul, in his epistles, is always moving from the theoretical, the, the theology, the doctrine that he, is, that he is sharing with the church on into reality. The pragmatics. How... How what God has done for us in our behalf actually begins to take shape in our lives as He shapes us and molds us and calls us to a life that is radically different than the life we once lived. And so Paul is always moving from theory to reality, from theology to life, from doctrine to practice. From heart to life, we might have the mind of Jesus, Paul says earlier on. And we might say, oh good, that's great, I'd like to have the mind of Jesus. Be united, be, be one together. Have the same mind. And we might say, oh good, good, that'd be great. Love others, live as light in the world. And we would nod our heads and say, Amen, Paul. 
That's good preaching right there. But here, Paul begins to meddle a bit. Notice how he began this chapter. You two ladies, he calls them by name. You two ladies, simmer down and work it out. And you, whoever it is, perhaps Epaphroditus who's carrying the letter back to them, perhaps someone else who just knew Paul was talking to him. Maybe another person that's in on it, but no one else is aware. But you, help them. Oh yeah, and Clement also. Notice how Paul begins to meddle The rubber meets the road. Theory begins to become practice in the life of the believer. In three particular areas, Paul addresses here in the final thoughts that he shares in this epistle. The rubber meets the road. Theory becomes practice in our relationships, in our prayers and thoughts, and in our giving. And these are the three areas that Paul begins to meddle with that he begins to get very specific and particular about as he is winding down this epistle. Our relationships. There is unity that comes to us. It's easy to talk about unity. It's easy to talk about being of one mind. But when Paul begins to name names and demand unity and demand sorting things out and working things out, it's a bit hairy. But there is unity that comes to us in the healing of relational hurts and in our partnership in the work of the gospel. Notice he begins this final chapter, and when Paul's writing, he's not the one that added that big four before verse one of chapter four. He didn't create the chapter divisions. Those were created about 1,700 years later, if if memory. No, about 1,300 years later, I believe, if memory serves me correct. But as Paul begins to wind down, notice he begins these opening thoughts specifically talking about a relational hurt that seems to be going on between these two ladies. But then he ends by bringing up others. A relationship that the Philippians have with others that they might have never met and might never meet. Even those who are members of Caesar's household. There is a unity that comes to us as relationships that were hurting become healed and as we partner together in the work of the Lord and in the work of the sending forth of His gospel. In our relationships, in how we interact with one another, in how we love even those we've never met. Theory the theory of unity, the theory of of being of one mind, of being minded like Jesus, begins to take shape in practical life. Paul demands something of us in the way of our prayers and our thoughts. And notice, I probably don't have to draw attention to the fact, you probably are well aware of it, that recently in our culture we've seen to encounter this disdain for thoughts and prayers. You say thoughts and prayers after a tragedy happens. My goodness, you're 
about to be tortured online. But Paul demands something of our thoughts and prayers, of our prayer life and our thinking life. I put these together because you really can't separate the two. Paul demands that, that, that we be anxious for nothing, but then in everything we bring our prayers before God, making our requests known to Him. With thanksgiving, notice there's that, thank, that thankfulness component to our prayer lives that Paul is, is insisting upon. And he says that the peace of God, which goes beyond what we can understand, will guard our hearts and minds through Christ. And he tells them, whatever's true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, something that's virtuous, anything that's praiseworthy, Think on these things. Meditate on these things. Let these things simmer in your mind. Paul tells us that there is a peace that comes to us by attending to prayer and by turning our attention toward truth, goodness, beauty, wherever they might be found in this world. This is truly countercultural. The mending of relationships that are hurt and the focusing on that which is good. Focusing on that which is true and that which is beautiful. These are truly countercultural. We are inundated with the bad with the ugly, with the false, or at least the slanted. But Paul insists that we live differently, that we be people of prayer and people who think differently. Not just, he's not just talking about the power of positive thinking here. He's talking about having our minds fixed on Jesus and His work in our lives and His work in the world around us. There's a bumper sticker floating around. You might have seen it. I I haven't seen it myself, but I've heard about it. Aslan is on the move. Those of you who've read Narnia know exactly what that means. As dark as the world is, God is at work. God is always at work, especially in the darkest of times. Don't miss it. That's one of the beautiful things about the season we're about to begin. When all is coldest, when all is darkest, when all seems hopeless, God.
God is at work. Think on these things, Paul says. And the theory becomes practice. Not just in our relationships, not just in our prayers and thoughts, but also in our giving. Paul says specifically, there is fruit that comes to us when we give faithfully, when we give trustingly, and when we give sacrificially to the Lord's work. It might seem like foolishness. And again, this is very countercultural. We, we in, our, in our culture, we do praise those who give. But to think about earning a check and then immediately giving some of it away faithfully to the same place every time, that, that seems like craziness in the world. It might seem like foolishness, but such is the gospel and such is the nature of how God works. God does work in mysterious ways and the gospel does seem like foolishness to those who don't believe it. But Paul tells us that there is fruit that comes. Notice Paul says, look, I'm not seeking a gift. I'm not seeking for you to to bless me. You've already been a blessing to me. You have already blessed me beyond what could have been expected. I'm seeking the fruit that abounds to your account. He again tells them that what they have done in his behalf is a a sacrifice and a sweet-smelling aroma to God, well-pleasing to him. But then he promises them, and my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. I was saddened and excited, struck by both. Um, watching the news, I guess Friday night is when I saw it. One was something I didn't even have to turn on the news to 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 know about. I I could have counted on it. It's like clockwork every year, Thursday night as as they open up the Black Friday chaos. The chaos is exactly what you get. And so you turn on the news and you see fighting and scratching and clawing and, you know, every fourth of a second there's a beep because of the language and, you know, families fighting with each other, moms trying to get their husbands back off the box that he's fighting over. I mean, it's it's completely crazy. Notice the posture of that sort of thing. The posture of hands grabbing and grasping. And the reward of that posture is that these people get to look like complete fools on national television. And all the nation mocks it and all the nation laughs about it and wags its head about it. But every year it seems that we produce the same exact sort of behavior. 
They could have been showing something from seven years ago for all I knew. I knew what to expect. Even security and law enforcement getting shoved out of the way, thrown to the ground for a great deal on a TV that nobody really needed anyhow, probably. But there was another story, another video on the news that was quite encouraging to me. There was a lady in the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area who ran out of gas on the highway. She's got no way to get gas to her car. She's not sure what she's going to do. And up comes a homeless man that lives just off the highway. And he's got 20 bucks in his pocket. And he goes to the gas station and gets gas for her and brings it back to her. A homeless veteran who gives foolishly and sacrificially to be a blessing. Think of the posture that he's displaying. Hands turned upward and outward. Every week, uh, as we sing the doxology and bring forth tithes and offerings, I try to make it a point to prayerfully keep my palms up and open, even if I'm holding a baby, to remind myself that everything I have has been given to me and I dare not grasp at it. I want hands that are turned upward and outward. The reward of this homeless veteran was a completely changed life. This lady told her boyfriend about what had happened and they set up a GoFundMe account in his behalf. And what I saw on Friday evening was that it was well over $300,000. All because a man did the right thing and gave even out of what he didn't have in order to be a blessing. The results, we must always leave in the Lord's hands. Living as He calls us to live does not guarantee that life will be easy. It does not guarantee that life will always go our way. It does not guarantee that we'll always be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Or that we'll always even be happy. But we are promised that peace will come. We are promised that He, the Lord, will guard our way and we are guaranteed to have reason to rejoice along that way. The communion table is a constant reminder of what happens through sacrifice. Redemption comes through sacrifice. Hope comes through sacrifice. Love is shown through sacrifice. 
And the Lord invites us to come. He invites us to come. To feast on Him who gave all for us. And He invites us as He sends us from the table. Out into the world that's filled with darkness. That's filled with hopelessness. He sends us out to emulate Him. To live like Him. To give like Him. To surrender ourselves and sacrifice ourselves like Him. For the sake of what He's doing in the lives of others. For the sake of the hope that He wants to offer to a world that is hopeless. May our posture be like His. May the theory of being minded like Jesus, of being united as His people, of self-giving love, may that theory become practice in our lives so that we might have reason to rejoice in the great good that God is doing among us and in us and through us. Let's pray.